Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Melbourne, Australia to discuss long-term outcomes in critically ill patients with COVID-19. So I'm Dr. Lisa Higgins. I am a Senior Research Fellow at the Australian and New Zealand Intensive Care Unit at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Dr. Higgins, an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us today. Uh, We will be discussing your article published in JAMA, uh, the January 3rd, 2023 edition, entitled Long-Term Outcomes in Critically Ill Patients with COVID-19 and the REMAP-CAP Randomized Clinical Trial. So this is really important work Um, in the critical care literature. We have very few um, studies that uh, give outcomes this far out. So maybe you could go ahead and tell us, firstly, why did you perform the study? So the main reason we performed the study is that we recognise that it's really important that we understand the longer-term outcomes uh, of critically ill patients. And most of the trials that we've done to date and most of the trials that are in the literature to date really only report short-term outcomes um, and in-hospital outcomes. And we know from qualitative work that the longer-term outcomes are actually more important to patients, um, not only whether they survive longer term, but but their function, their disability and their quality of life longer term. And so we know that it's really important to understand the effect that any of the interventions we use have on those longer-term outcomes. And your group published um, earlier work looking at the short-term outcomes. Maybe you could recap that for our listeners. Yeah, so in REMAP-CAP, we have reported um, six domains to date, domains at, at effectively types of treatments. And with REMAP-CAP, the primary outcome and the outcome reported in those manuscripts to date is um, organ support-free days. And what that is, is the composite of in-hospital survival uh, and in survivors, the duration of organ support to day 21. So it's a short-term in-hospital outcome. And what we found, so in each of our domains, so in the immune modulation domain, we found that the two interleukin-6 receptor antagonists, TOSI and SARI, they significantly improve outcome, while anakinra doesn't. Uh, in the therapeutic anticoagulation domain, we found that Therapeutic anticoagulation uh, was not beneficial and there was even a strong trend towards harm with therapeutic anticoagulation compared to standard thromboprophylaxis. We found no benefit uh, in the convalescent plasma arm with convalescent plasma compared to no convalescent plasma. In the corticosteroid arm, we found there was a um, high likelihood of benefit, but it didn't reach our predefined statistical trigger. And that's because in corticosteroids, we... Um, stopped recruitment early based on external evidence, particularly from recovery. In the antiviral domain, we found um, harm associated with the antivirals. So that's um, hydroxychloroquine, lipinavir, ritonavir, and the combination of the two antivirals. And in the last domain, which is antiplatelet, as I remember the six domains. Um, So we didn't find a benefit with antiplatelets on that primary outcome of organ support-free days, but there was an indication that there was um, a potential mortality benefit with antiplatelets. But for our primary outcome, which was organ support-free days, we we didn't find a benefit. So this is really important work that you and your team published uh, last year and the year before. You'll use a Bayesian adaptive platform trial design. Maybe you could explain what that involves for our audience, because 
we in the critical care field uh, usually have very small studies. We aren't able to target therapies. We usually have outcomes or um, therapies where there's no benefit shown with the outcomes. So what was unique about your study design that allowed you to uh, investigate uh, so many patients um, and actually drill down deep uh, to get answers that you really needed? Yeah, so in a, in a Bayesian adaptive platform, so if we start with the platform, what that means is that we're investigating a, a, a disease rather than a specific treatment. And then what we can do is within that platform trial, investigate multiple different types of treatment for that disease at the same time, which not only allows us to obviously be doing what is like doing multiple studies at the same time, but it also enables us to test for interactions of interventions. And so what happens is if we use um, COVID as an example, if a patient comes in with COVID um, and they are eligible for our platform, and if we talk about the critically ill state, so in, in REMAP, we randomise patients to two states, a critically ill state, which is patients who are receiving organ support, and a non-critically ill state, which is hospitalised patients who, who aren't receiving organ support at the time of randomisation. So when a patient comes in, uh, what can happen is there are multiple domains that a patient can be randomised to, remembering that the domains are types of treatments. And so one patient can be randomised to multiple domains at the same time where they get one allocation, they are assigned to one intervention in each domain. And in REMAP, we've had up to, we've had patients randomised to up to seven domains. So they're getting interventions for seven different types of treatment um, at the same time. And we use a Bayesian design in REMAP. And what we do in that Bayesian design is we do frequent analyses and we continue to randomise patients until we reach a predefined statistical trigger, which might be, for example, for superiority. And the benefit of that is compared to a traditional frequentist trial where we pre-specify a sample size, if that pre-specified sample size, if we've, you know, assumed the wrong size of effect, um, we either may under-recruit patients um, and not come to a conclusion, or we may over-recruit patients where we could have come to a conclusion earlier and began treating patients. So, you know, that's one of the real benefits of the design is we continue to recruit until we know we've got an answer. And one of the other things we do is we do response-adaptive randomization, which means when we're doing these frequent analyses, uh, the model, which it's done by blinded statisticians, but the model looks at, you know, what are the treatment effects so far and if there are particular interventions that look like they are beneficial, then we will randomise more patients to that intervention to reach an answer quicker. That's really impressive. Um, I think your platform was able to recruit at 197 sites, 14 different countries, over almost 5,000 patients. Um, Maybe you could comment on what kind of collaboration and teamwork this required. I imagine it required a lot of organization, a lot of planning. Maybe share that with our audience. Yeah, so look, Remap Cap was planned. You know, we first were funded for Remap Cap back in 2014, and this is on the back of the H1N1 pandemic back in 2009, um, 2010, where we really wanted to do some randomized trials. But by the time we were prepared with the protocol and ethics and everything else that's required to set up a trial, the, you know, the, the pandemic had effectively waned and we weren't able to actually recruit patients. And we recognised that it does take a while to set up research. And so Remap Cap was born um, with the plan that it was a study that was designed and we were in the background going to be looking at treatments for community-acquired pneumonia. 
but it was always designed to be able to adapt in the event of a respiratory pandemic. We already had a pandemic protocol, uh, you know, a pandemic appendix to our protocol. We had ethics approval. And so should a pandemic come about, all we need to do is get an amendment with regards to the interventions. And so that in itself made recruitment beginning early in the COVID pandemic much, much uh, simpler. And you know, REMAP already had a number of countries involved that that increased exponentially during the uh, during the pandemic. But we already had staffing in place, protocols in place, and that enabled then rapid expansion um, during the pandemic. And the fact that all of this already existed and we already had networks meant that it became uh, it was much easier for people to gain funding in additional countries and to really rapidly increase um, rapidly increase our recruitment. Yeah, that is really uh, powerful work. Um, instead of being reactionary as we have been in the past, you all actually planned this at on five, six years in advance and were able to um, come to some really impressive um, outcomes. Um, before we discuss your key findings, maybe you could just comment on um, the other studies that were conducted at the same time or prior to your work, um, how did your adaptive platform trial, and I think you've alluded to this uh, in some ways, how did it build on um, and advance on the limitations of former studies? Look, yeah, I, I, look, I think the biggest benefit of the adaptive platform trial is that particularly for something like COVID, which is a new disease, it's very hard in a frequentist design to pre-specify a sample size because you really don't have an indication of what effect an intervention is going to have. But in frequentist trial, that you need to specify something and you need to pre-specify a sample size. And that's obviously a huge risk uh, during a pandemic where you have, have no indication of what that effect size might be. And so in a Bayesian design, we don't need to, um, we can continue recruiting until we reach our trigger. So it, it overcomes those, those, in a normal trial, you know, we have, background information, we have previous research, and we can probably be fairly good at specifying a sample size. But in a pandemic with a new disease, we really don't have that background knowledge to be able to specify effect sizes um, and determine um, pre-specified sample sizes. So the fact that in a Bayesian design, we don't specify a sample size and we continue recruiting until we reach one of our pre-specified statistical triggers is really powerful because it, it means that you know we're going to keep going until we get an answer. Great. So let's uh, turn to um, your study findings. Um, this was a pre-specified uh, secondary analysis. Um, what were your uh, primary outcomes and uh, what did you find? So for this analysis, um, our main outcome was day 180 mortality, and then our secondary outcomes were day 90 mortality, health-related quality of life, and disability. Um, and so in terms of our day 90 mortality, we analysed this as a time-to-event model uh, because in REMAP-CAP, we follow all patients up to day 90. Um, beyond day 90, we only follow up the critically ill patients, so the patients who were receiving organ support at randomization, and we didn't mandate follow-up beyond day 90. Uh, in some of the regions um, where REMAP-CAP is conducted, it would be very challenging to be able to contact patients and complete the questionnaires. And so uh, in Nepal and in India, and also in the US, uh, none of our sites in those countries completed day 180 follow-up, but we do have day 90 follow-up on all the patients, which is why we chose to use a, a time to event model so that all patients could be included and could use information right up until we had it. So for these patients, right up until 
till day 90 in the model. Um, and so what we found for mortality was that the um, Tossi and Sari, the interleukin-6 receptor antagonists, continue to have um, significant benefits. So there is a significant improval in survival out to six months with both Tossi and Sari. We found that the antiplatelets have um, a high probability of improved survival, so um, out to day 180. So they had a 95% probability of improved survival compared to no antiplatelets. And this is obviously in contrast to our original findings, which looked at the composite of organ support and um, in-hospital mortality. And, you know, there may be some concerns with our original analysis that perhaps there wasn't proportionality of of um, treatment effects, and that's perhaps why we weren't why we stopped and because for no difference. But in our original paper, we did find that there was certainly um, a strong mortality signal with antiplatelets, and in response to that, we actually reopened our antiplatelet domain with mortality as a primary outcome rather than using our typical organ support free day primary outcome. And so we continue to recruit to the antiplatelet domain. But this longer term analysis has given us, you know, another indication that really it's you know, there's a high likelihood that antiplatelets are beneficial. We found a 95% probability of, of better survival at six months for patients treated with either aspirin or a P2Y12 inhibitor. Um, we didn't find any benefits with any of the other interventions. Um, therapeutic anticoagulation continued to uh, fall on the harm side um, with regards to its point estimate, albeit the credible interval crosses, um, you know, what would be no difference. Uh, and that the antivirals continue to be harmful. And, and one of the reasons we wanted to do this analysis is obviously in a pandemic, the majority of studies are using short-term outcomes. And, you know, it's important to at times use short-term outcomes to generate results as quickly as possible during the pandemic where we need to know what treatments are and aren't working. So that was important. But then it was also really important for us to know that those short-term outcomes we're using to make recommendations for patient management it was really important to us that we found that they do persist long-term and that there is a strong correlation between our short-term outcome and longer-term outcomes that are more important to patients, which is what we found. So did you have any surprises when you analysed the data that you were like, oh, I didn't expect that, or oh, wow, imagine that? So I don't think our antiplatelet result was surprising because we, we'd seen the mortality signal in our primary analysis. I think one of the things that was surprising is one of the concerns we have um, in critical care when we save lives is that the lives we save, those people may actually end up with a lot of disability or poor quality of life. And it's absolutely not what we found here. Um, in the interventions, for example, the um, interleukin-6 receptor antagonists, the, the patients who survive actually have better, albeit, you know, it's um, the credible interval crosses the, the no effect line, but you know, the point estimates all show that they have better quality of life and less disability, um, which is which is really reassuring because, you know, given that concern that if you save someone's life, you really don't want it to be of, of poor quality. And it's not what we found at all. The interventions that, that were resulting in, in better survival were also resulting in better quality of life and less disability. And then maybe you could comment on the corticosteroids. Um, as you mentioned, um, the recovery trial showed uh, marked clinical benefits. And obviously, with that finding, it didn't make sense to be able to continue that as a component of your arm. Um, 
maybe you could comment on how there's this interplay between this adaptive platform trial and how other studies can affect uh, your ability to continue uh, with a particular study uh, design or domain. Yeah, so obviously we need equipoise. We would never ask clinicians to randomise a patient uh, to an intervention without equipoise. And I think that the recovery results very much meant that people no longer had equipoise. It's, recovery is a fantastic study. And so um, we didn't think people had equipoise and we wanted people to be people who were be, um, receiving organ support or, or oxygen at baseline, which is what recovery, where recovery showed the benefit was. We wanted them to be receiving corticosteroids. And so it wasn't appropriate for us to continue randomizing. And when we analyzed our corticosteroid domain, we certainly found a, you know, a similar effect to recovery in that we, we found that it would appear that um, corticosteroids are beneficial. The point estimates were certainly on the side of benefit, but we yet didn't have the sample size to reach our trigger. So our credible intervals were crossing the, the no effect line simply because, you know, we only had 385 patients randomised. So we just didn't have the sample size um, to be able to see an effect yet, but certainly the, the point estimates were where we would expect them to be based on the recovery result. And, you know, our Kaplan-Meier curves, um, you know, clearly the corticosteroid arms look like they're doing better um, in our Kaplan-Meier curves. But again, we simply didn't have the sample size to be able to um, confirm that, you know, corticosteroids were beneficial. But we were happy that, you know, the design of recovery, you know, recovery is a very strong trial and that we felt it was appropriate to stop recruiting, especially given our results were similar. We just didn't have enough patients yet to, to have that significance. And then maybe you could comment on co um, interventions. I mean, so you showed that IL 6 receptor antagonists, antiplatelets, and potentially steroids were uh, beneficial. Did it have an additive effect or a, a multiplicative effect? Uh, were you able to assess uh, that interaction? So we didn't do it in our, in our long, we didn't look at the interaction in our long term um, analysis, but in our initial um, immune modulation analysis, and I would need to go back to the manuscript to check, but there is an addition, you know, the IL-6 receptor antagonists um, are beneficial when patients are receiving steroids. And obviously you can imagine most of the patients in our IL-6 uh, analysis were receiving steroids, but that together steroids and immune modulators um, is a good thing. Um, we also looked at the interaction with therapeutic anticoagulation and antiplatelets. That was pre-specified, and, and the combination of that was uh, bad. Um, but, uh, you know, therapeutic anticoagulation itself was um, showing a potential for harm. So, you know, it's one of the real benefits of the design is that we can look together at the uh, can look together at the interventions and see you know is an intervention only beneficial when you're receiving you know another intervention as well and you know that's obviously a, a really strong reason to have a design like this over a standard frequentist design where it's much more challenging uh, to look at those interactions even if you've collected the data you know the other intervention that you're looking at isn't a randomized comparison and so you know it's much more difficult to draw any valid conclusions um, unless you know both types of interventions are, are assigned in a randomized fashion and then uh, dr Higgins, maybe you could comment on um, the cost of these medications um, obviously corticosteroids and antiplatelet agents are uh, ubiquitous and very cheap, and the IL-6 receptor antagonists were a whole lot more expensive. Um, are yes. there any plans to do any cost-effectiveness analysis or cost-efficacy analysis? Because uh, some of these drugs were just not available uh, in certain parts of the world. Um, maybe you could comment on that. 
Um, so absolutely, I am in the middle of economic analysis for all of those interventions you just mentioned um, and hoping to complete them very soon. And you're right, look, it's a, for things like corticosteroids, um, you know, they are so cheap and if there's benefit, it's it's fairly easy um, to show that they're cost effective, but we do need to do the analysis. You know, sometimes um, interventions might improve survival, um, but increase ICU length of stay significantly. And so, you know, it's not necessarily just the cost of the intervention that matters when you're doing these analyses. You need to look at all of the other impacts that that has. You know, do they stay in ICU much longer? Do they require organ support for much longer? Um, and so it is important to do cost-effectiveness analyses, and we are doing these. And, you know, if we look at the interleukin-6 receptor antagonists, they are expensive, but relative to a day in ICU, they're not expensive. And so if people get out of ICU even a few hours earlier, you've already paid for the drug. Um, and so I think that's, you know, important to remember that it is really important that we do the cost-effectiveness analysis and, and we see um, even though it's what might be an expensive drug, actually it might save money overall because patients are no longer requiring organ support or not having to stay in ICU as long and, and, and downstream effects like that. And then your study focused uh, mainly on therapeutics. Um, were there any components looking at um, mechanical ventilation, uh, you know, to, to minimize uh, ARDS or ventilator-induced lung injury? Uh, able to comment on any of that, and there's also uh, a lot of talk of you know folks doing awake proning versus uh, uh, obviously proning when they're intubated and sedated. Uh, do you have any data on that, or do you think future studies should look at that if they if you have another uh, pandemic? So, so absolutely, I think you know we need to work out you know where there's where there's questions uh, where people aren't sure what's best. You know, I think that the only way to move forward is with the trial to get a real answer. Um, Remapcap does have a ventilation domain which is open and recruiting, um, but you know we never know when we're going to get to an answer because, as I said, we continue to recruit until we reach a statistical trigger. You know, and and having worked on numerous ventilation trials before, you know, ventilation trials are, are challenging, um, getting people to, uh, you know, deliver the intervention uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a way that we'd like it delivered. Um, you know, it, it is challenging. But, yes, RemapCap does have a ventilation domain. And, you know, as you can imagine with RemapCap, we come up with huge numbers of um, interventions we'd like to study. Um, and as much as the trial design does allow for that, there is also the limitation of having to write the protocols related to those interventions and obviously not overburdening sites. So choosing the interventions that we think are most important clinically at the time that need an answer. Um, so, you know, we we can study many, many domains, um, but there is a limit with regards to what, you know, site resources and what, what sites can manage um, and also what a patient would feel is appropriate. You know, a patient may not want to be randomised to 15 different domains. We don't, we don't know that. They might be. Um, but, I you know, I think that there is a trade-off between wanting all the answers and having a trial that is feasible, that sites feel that they can implement. Got you. And then maybe you could comment um, on the effect of uh, vaccination as well as uh, different uh, circulating um, COVID strains. So your study was conducted, um, I believe, from March 2020 to June of 2021. Um, some may ask the question, you know, uh, do, do your findings hold for the different variants of vaccination? 
I wouldn't assume if there would be a reason why I wouldn't hold it. Maybe you could just comment on that. Yeah, look, it's a really interesting point. We the, the study, these six domains recruited between you know March 2020 and June 2021. So that's prior to the widespread availability of the vaccine. And you know, it's also prior to the current circulating variants. And so it's possible that the interventions we have found to be beneficial may not be beneficial in a highly vaccinated population or they may not be beneficial with the new variants. And, you know, it's only through data collection, um, you know, and, and, and analysing what's happening to patients now, you know, that we'll be able to understand, you know, it would be unlikely that there'd be a complete change in the effect of an intervention, um, you know, based on a new variant. But I do think it's really important to recognise that the disease is changing and we do need to continue to collect data to understand whether these interventions are having a benefit. And we continue, for example, in all, in all of the patients being randomised to remap cap currently, um, we collect whether they are receiving the interleukin-6 receptor antagonist, whether they are receiving antiplatelets, um, whether they are receiving any antivirals. So we collect all this data so that we're going to be able to go back and look at, even though obviously these patients aren't randomised to these, those interventions because they're now standard care, you know, having that ongoing data to understand are these interventions still having an effect um, is, is really important. I agree. And then let's wade into some controversial stuff here. Um, maybe you could comment on hydroxychloroquine and then what you observed in your trial. And then also, um, did you ever consider uh, doing ivermectin? So look, one of the, you know, this is why randomized controlled trials are so important. Um, you know, when you have um, prominent figures promoting interventions that don't have an evidence base. Um, it's really important that we rapidly develop an evidence base, and particularly for something like hydroxychloroquine, where we did find harm. Um, you know, we know uh, we have too many examples in critical care where we have done trials and interventions that we thought would be beneficial and they turned out to be harmful. And that always shows the real importance of a randomised, you know, um, controlled trial. I, I look at, you know, um, intensive insulin therapy as an example, decompressive craniectomy as an example. Um, so I think it's really important that, it, particularly during a pandemic, you know, that, that we really study every intervention in a randomised fashion so that we can come to what is likely to be the truth um, and to really, you know, hold that dear, hold that, that need for the truth dear and, and to really get those results out as soon as possible, particularly where, you know, we had so many people promoting hydroxychloroquine and, you know, what we've done is shown that not only does it increase mortality, but it's also, you know, it's also not resulting in any better longer-term outcomes with the antivirals. So, you know, just shows the importance of getting as many patients into trials as possible. Um, and ivermectin, uh, so I sat on the unblinded side, so I haven't been involved in a lot of the discussions. It certainly was considered, is all I can say. It was definitely considered uh, early on as an intervention, but obviously then um, we've chosen other interventions um, to study it. But I wasn't privy to the conversations as to why we chose which antivirals we chose. Yeah, and I think, uh, as you've alluded to already, uh, the fact that you all had planned this um... Uh, adaptive platform trial five years prior, uh, the ability to launch the study so quickly um, and get answers so quickly um, undoubtedly uh, saved countless lives um, as patients received appropriate therapy once the trial results were out. So 
definitely want to commend you and your team for uh, this massive undertaking and uh, for getting this data out. Um, Dr. Higgins, maybe you could comment on any uh, key limitations that you want um, our audience members to be aware of uh, when interpreting your study. Yeah, look, so um, as I said earlier, we didn't mandate follow-up um, beyond day 90, and so um, only 88% of sites um, participated in, in the follow-up beyond day 90, and we only have mortality on 80s just under 86% of patients. So it's obviously a limitation not having um, all of the data, although we did use the data up till day 90 for all of the patients. Um, but in particular, you know, excuse me, not having data in Nepal or India or the United States, you know, um, gives us a less representative sample at day 180. Um, but one of our, with regards to health-related quality of life and disability, um, our follow-up numbers were quite low. Um, we did multiple imputation to account for that. Um, and we also did a sensitivity analysis without imputation, which showed no difference to the multiple imputation um, results. But obviously our preference would be to have follow-up on a, on a greater number of patients. Um, it's obviously particularly challenging to do uh, in a pandemic in particular. Um, Look, and one of the other limitations with regards to quality of life and disability is that we don't have baseline scores on these patients. You know, people don't know they're going to be coming into ICU and it's very challenging to retrospectively get baseline scores. Um, so we don't have baseline scores. We, you know, there is the assumption that randomization um, would result in similar groups. Um, but, you know, there's the possibility that, for example, in, in antiplatelets, there's the possibility that there was a difference uh, between groups at baseline and so that the differences that we see, the benefit that we see with quality of life at six months could possibly be due to, you know, differences that exist at baseline and we don't have measures to be able to know about that. Um, and then as you said, um, uh, you know, as we spoke about, this research relates to prior variants of COVID and also um, prior to the widespread availability of vaccination and so it's unclear whether the results that we've found now um, are relevant uh, in the current setting. Well, it's been a really impressive uh, interview and uh, I just want to say kudos to you and your team for um, actually doing the hard work of getting out this data, the 180-day outcomes for critical patients with COVID-19. Uh, we definitely look forward to your um, cost-effectiveness and cost-efficacy analysis that uh, are planned. Um, Dr. Higgins, I want to leave you uh, with the last word. Um, any final comments uh, that you want our audience to be aware of? Um, and uh, once again, thank you for really outstanding work and kudos to your team. Thanks so much, Dominique. And my comment is please randomize patients. If you have patients and you're unsure what to give them, please put them in a trial. And just for everyone who does trials, the importance of measuring longer term outcomes. We know that's what's important to our patients. So ensuring that when you do do a trial that you factor in the need to measure some of the longer term outcomes. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Dominique. A big thank you to Dr. Higgins and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.